And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. I'm sorry. You can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I think! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Break up the music. Charge your glass. This nation is going to dance all night. The authenticity of Actua Soccer 2, Trevor Brooking, how to describe a ball to the balls, Ali McCoist, doing your homework, Andy Hinchcliffe, the stigma of the near post, Andy Gray, and the Lulu effect. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Cliche. Right now, you can get 50% off an annual subscription to The Athletic. That's less than £1 a week. Enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod and sign up by today, Thursday the 25th of February, when this podcast goes out. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 58 of the Football Clichés pod. I'm Adam Hurry, alongside me once again, Charlie Akosher. How are you? I'm good, how are you? Very well, thank you. Alongside you for his debut, it's Amitai Winehouse, the northern powerhouse of The Athletic. Welcome. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, very well. Really happy to have you here today because we have, a, we have kind of a, a very special subject for us today. It, it's something, Charlie, that's cropped up quite a lot in cliches over the last year or so but it's something that we finally wanted to dedicate a whole hour or so to and that's co-commentators um, which excites most people in various different ways I think. Yeah I guess it shows even unwittingly we talk about the most episodes I know there's a certain former Sky Sports commentator who I seem to talk mm. about quite often uh, which shows how uh, how important they are and, and they are something certainly you know and I think growing up and watching football that we all had and, and I guess still do have very strong opinions on, and and we'll get onto them. But there are you know people who have uh, certain co-commentators who have caused genuine arguments amongst people as to kind of which side of the debate you sit mm. on. So that they clearly are people who we feel we have um, quite a lot of investment in because they have quite an impact, I guess, on how much we enjoy a game. I thought you were about to slip into a certain Mr. A. Gray <laughs> there, but yeah. whatever you, happened to you him, yourself back. Yeah, exactly. But before we get it stuck into that, guys, I want to get into uh, the adjudication panel for this week. Um, a couple of lovely items. Uh, really looking forward to talking about this. First of all, um, Amitai, um, huge fan of the show, Shutterpalooza, has written in. He says, everything about the edit of this commentary from Match of the Day is disconcerting and far <laughs> too much like a game on FIFA for my liking. You've started playing a game and before they finish their intro, it just jumps into the next bit of commentary. Now, Amitai... Match of the Day is a brilliantly edited 
piece of TV. I, it's very rare that you watch it and think, well, this looks very jarring, the way they've edited these highlights together. But every now and then, the commentary seems rather stitched together. And um, Shotspalooza here has, has kind of, he's nailed it. This is just like a game of FIFA. And I, I, I really loved how this pans out. This is Jonathan Pierce commentating on Southampton versus Chelsea at the weekend. Chelsea make a half-time change. Tammy Abraham hasn't returned. Clearly still feeling the effects of that injury from Monday. And Callum Hudson-Odoi has come on for him. Ferner. <laughs> <laughs> a little touch every time, but just, just really, really nice. <laughs> it, it does feel as though um, Jonathan Pierce has sort of slipped back into Robot Wars mode there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just love the way the tone shifts there. It's amazing. <laughs> but there's clearly nothing they could do about it. So that's it. It's like we're just going to have to leave it in. But um, but it's nice to see the, the, the seams appear every now and then. Do you think as well he is just partly... It- taken by surprise but you know at the start of a half you feel you can kind of meander along and then all of a sudden in 10 seconds Werner is in a slightly surprisingly dangerous position and he he has to kind of do this really quick adjustment and it seems to catch him out of it no it it, it was but it was classic computer game it was was like yeah there was a little slot for his name to Mm. appear in and then the 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 generic commentary would continue. But um, yeah, but thanks, Shantzapalooza, for sending that in. Secondly, breaking news this week, Amatai. Respect potentially about to go through the roof in English football because players have been urged to show their support for referees by clapping them onto the pitch. A new campaign called Give the Ref a Hand, uh, which the name of which we, we may get into shortly, is being launched in grassroots football with the hope that it will also be taken up by the professional game. Is this games gone or is it the opposite? This is games game coming back in, in emphatic fashion. I, I, I'm not sure which. Well, the first thing I want to say is I'm not a fan of referees, but this is definitely a classy touch. And if I was on Twitter, <laughs> I'd do a few clapping hand emojis. Um, yeah, I, I, I think this would be one of the most ludicrous moments in football (laughs) history personally we already have debates every year over whether title winners should be applauded onto the pitch for their first game after winning the title if we're applauding referees on every week then the game has definitely definitely gone (laughs) charlie i mean we could we could talk a day about the sentiment behind this which is mawkish and 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 um despite being incredibly well-meaning just just too much but can we just can we analyze the kind of potential practicalities of this are the players literally going to do a sort of guard of honour <laughs> as the referees come out as they take the ball off the ball plinth? I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm not being flippant here. The practicalities of this are actually quite important. They could be really shit. Do you know what it makes me think of? I think Adam, it was you who sent this round once from is it Jeff Winter's autobiography where he mm. in his last game he he detects the cop. <laughs> Uh, clapping at the end of it more than normal, and it's and he thinks yeah. he says something like, "Was it was it for me?" Because they knew it was my last game. That crowd's so knowledgeable, <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. And so it I wouldn't surprise it, me. It really yeah. wouldn't surprise me. I just love that idea so much. The Liverpool fans coming together to applaud Jeff Winter. But yeah, so it makes me think of that. And but but maybe devalues that because if you know how c- can players and the cop show their appreciation uh, in that kind of way if it's become so normalised? I'm gonna tell you. Two further questions here. First of all, when fans are back, they're not going to be joining in on this nonsense, are they? Well, are we not going to have like a standing ovation at the start of every game for Mike <laughs> Dean as he uh, struts out, takes the ball off the plinth, holds it aloft like a trophy with the players either side? Yeah, I, I think 
we're more realistically going to get a minute's jeering for the referees, given the way that people have been um, acting towards them during lockdown. Uh, the potential also, inevitably, Charlie, for banter here is is also stratospherically high. Um, I, I do fear that um, VAR is going to have a job in its hands to detect the sarcasm of the clapping, a la Wayne Rooney versus big Kim Milton Nielsen back in the day. I, yeah, and I remember actually, and this will make me sound like even more of a knob than I already sound like, but playing school mm-hmm. rugby and at the end of a game where, oh, no. yeah, <laughs> where you know the code there is that you absolutely do not you know, give any dissent to referees or anything like that. It's, uh, it's a very gentlemanly game. Anyway, we'd been on the wrong end of a few, I thought, uh, questionable decisions. And at the end of the game, when you do your normally rid- the ridiculous kind of three cheers for the opposition, I then uh, said three cheers for the ref which I thought was hilarious and cutting. Um, and my the car coach went absolutely mad at me after, said he'd never been so embarrassed in all his life. But so I want, you know, are people going to, you know, abuse it in the way that in the way that I did all those years ago? It, it, it would seem so. Sorry that this is going to be your last appearance on the, on the show's <laughs> pod, uh, on the back of that story. It's a real shame, real shame. But um, I, I think, genuinely think less of you after that story um, in so many ways. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think we can all agree that this, potential scheme is doomed to failure at least at at the top level so on to the main event today we're going to talk about co-commentary which amatite feels like a trifling matter it feels like a, a almost too niche corner of football consumption for us to be covering but it's not it's not co-commentators are a recurring character in this podcast we've we've skirted around them for too long it's time that we really gave them the attention they deserve because they serve a an oddly important function in how we consume football, I think. Yeah, 100%. In the world where we watch football 24-7, which is what we currently live in, who would Martin Tyler be jabbering onto if it wasn't for mm. Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher or Alan Smith, I guess? Yeah, I, I think they absolutely define every game of football. Did any of you notice, by um, the way, just on the... Uh, the, the kind of how much football there is and I guess you know they're probably you know everyone's a bit tired there's sort of I felt a bit of tension between Tyler and Jamie Carragher in I think it was the Spurs Man City game and Tyler there were just a few things um obviously made me think of that like the high point of that was the Lawrence and Mowbray uh 2010 World <laughs> Cup that became su- such a talking point but there was something he was talking about Gundogan and how he'd suddenly become this great goal scorer and then Tyler was talking about Paul Warhurst and saying do you remember him you know he went from being a centre-back to strike Inevitable. and Carragher said something like yeah I'm just really struggling to like work out the relevance of this or something it's really <laughs> funny and he had to kind of explain I mean, to maybe- him Maybe we underestimate, Charlie, just how sick of each other they must be because the games are coming, as we say, thick and fast. Are. I mean, I'm Amatai and I had a, a huge ding-dong on The Athletic uh, the other day about uh, football fatigue, football watching oh, yeah. fatigue. But I don't think we've ever thought about how commentators must be just genuinely sick of sharing a gantry and pleasantries and, and I don't know, motorway sandwiches. Well, presumably they're the only people the other person sees outside of their own household right now. I suppose so. I mean, they, they do feel a, a, a little bit like family members. And it's, it's, it, there's almost a kind of like um, sort of cop buddy situation going on here. I mean, that's how tight they seem to be. I asked a uh, current commentator who wishes to remain anonymous about his various relationships with, with some of his co-commentators down the years. He had this to say, um, let's call him Bob. Bob says many think that because they've been immersed in football all their life, they spoke about football every day with teammates and they did a few interviews, that they can immediately become a good co-commentator. Well, we can all drive a car, but that doesn't mean we can take part in a Formula One Grand Prix or drive an HGV, says Bob. He continues, the simple way to put it is the commentator draws the lines, the co-commentator colours them in, Charlie. 
Um, nice way of putting it, I think, from Bob. Yeah, that's a really nice analogy. It's such a fine art, isn't it? Because you don't want them to be kind of too busy and too dominant, but you do want them to, to offer something. And at the key moments, the without really realising it, sometimes you'll kind of hear the commentator almost have to bring them in, you know, say their name as if, you know, to which can sound a bit clunky. So I guess the idea is that they, they don't have to do that and you have the chemistry, which a lot of those best sort of main commentators and co-commentators do, where they kind of know instinctively when the other one's going to come in. Amatai, we could talk very earnestly about what we think makes a good co-commentator. I'm, I'm increasingly sceptical about this idea that we need them to have a very specific level of insight and authority when really, I mean, factoring in whether we have a invested interest in the game itself sometimes I think we just care about whether they sound good or not I think it's more superficial and appeal than many claim it is yeah I I think the sort of old school approach was that they had to add something of value to the game whereas actually personally I just want them to say something absolutely balmy or (laughs) go on a rant or it's I I don't know I've got to the point now where I just view it entirely for the entertainment factor and if if Gary Neville is sat there doing his usual it's Manchester United football club rant for about 10 minutes during, <laughs> I don't know, a, a 2-1 loss to Crystal Palace at Old Trafford, that's probably the most enjoyable thing he could do as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's, it's a weird kind of paradox, Charlie, because I'm, I'm sure that co-commentators strive to be professional and clearly there's a professional bar to be met in terms of how much homework they've done and that sort of thing. I just don't think, I don't think the viewers care that much. I, d- I genuinely don't think it's a big issue. People will claim, just like they claim to read long reads, they probably don't, <laughs> but I, I, I don't think they care about insight as much as they say. Yeah, maybe, but I think then you do... I mean, we'll probably get on to it, but like Mark Lawrence and I think that did... Do you remember, the, I think it was the 2018 World Cup and there was this big mm. thing, it was that early game, or maybe it was maybe it was France-Argentina that he was doing or one of them anyway, and he was doing his whole, you know, shtick of like, I don't really care about this, I'm not really enjoying it, mm. whatever. And I think that, <laughs> maybe it's just in my kind of Twitter echo chamber, but there was quite a lot of like, you know, I can't believe, you know, he's t- he doesn't seem to know about some of these players, like hasn't done the prep, all of that. Um, maybe that's quite a small strata but I think when you push it kind of too far and are almost too upfront about the fact that like I've never heard of this guy whatever <laughs> I think that can <laughs> no, rub I people up the wrong way yeah no I think you're right so if if we can't re- it, it would be kind of a futile effort for us to kind of really pick apart what makes a good co-commentator because I don't think it's that important genuinely so I think it's better for us to sort of take a kind of overview of the different types of co-commentators that we hear, hear over the years and then decide how that feeds into our enjoyment or otherwise, of televised football. So I, I want to start with, with the first kind of co-commentator, which I would I would classify Amitai as chatty stroke relaxed. Your candidates here are historically Trevor Brooking, who was, a, who was a, just a very calming influence at very stressful moments like Beckham versus Greece, where even he got carried away. But up until then, he was kind of the measured kind of um, everything's going to be all right or maybe not sort of kind of presence. Uh, David Pleat, of course, who who has a kind of similar level of kind of amiable bookishness about him, but again, doesn't get too carried away. Mick McCarthy, the perennially philosophical Mick McCarthy, who just sort of sighs his way through his games. And then most latterly, Alan Smith, who I feel has carried on that mantle. Co-commentators whose job it really is is just to remain calm and um, kind of sort of steer us through the game. I think I think that's it's a it's a good 
kind of kind of co-commentator, isn't it, Amitai? Yeah, it, it sort of depends who they're balanced with. If you've got Martin Tyler screaming about uh, Marcus Rashford's latest goal for Manchester United, then you definitely, definitely want Alan Smith sat with him, just calmly talking you through it afterwards. It's why everyone's sort of fallen in love with Ali McCoist recently. If if you're watching Burnley against Crystal Palace at Turf Moor and Ali McCoist is talking about the great sandwich that he got in a shop near the ground while, I don't know... Uh, while John Champion is banging on about the tackle that's just happened, then then it just it just it just makes it an easier watch. But if you're watching two very relaxed commentators, I don't think it works in the slightest bit because there's no there's no hype to the game. So it's it's the I don't know maybe it's the yin and yang of commentary. You need you need both for it to work. Yeah, maybe you need you need kind of big voice, small voice <laughs> partnership, Charlie. Uh, Charlie, I want to I play a clip, first of all, to, to kind of illustrate what was perhaps the golden era of, of chatty co-commentary. Uh, this is Trevor Brooking in Actua Soccer 2. The final whistle goes, and there's a scoreline there, which is going to raise a few eyebrows around the country. Well, it was a fantastic display. I mean, uh, I don't certainly envisage a journey back to the visitors is going to be a happy one because they'll just be reliving each goal as it went in against them. Uh, you have to give credit to the home side. Uh, but as I say, I wouldn't like to be in the, the opposition dressing room because the manager left even half a minute before the final whistle. So he's probably waiting what with, I don't know, in the dressing room. Uh, so I don't envy them, but a great home display. <laughs> Maybe with the chairman. Well, yeah, <laughs> there might be parting company. Charlie. In the, in the grand history of um, football computer game commentary, which is often very stilted and often very kind of bits in the right slot, this is incredibly natural. I think this is underrated as a technically an acting performance. This is perfect. Yeah, I love it. These th- you did sometimes get this with the computer games, didn't you? They'd hone on these really like specific things. I remember doing a piece with John Champion about the old Pro Evo games where he would often say these... He, you know, he'd say like the game kicks off, uh, ambulances are on standby, insurance policies have all been sorted, like all this this really <laughs> like granular, quite weird detail. And here, I, I love the manager left before the end of the game yeah. and the, the chairman it's of Canada chuckles. or Italy. Um, yeah, and it, and it underscripted as well that the sort of the slight imperfections in, in, in the way that he speaks it, in a in a perfectly logical way, adds authenticity to it. So I I, I feel like it just more people need to know about the co-commentary in Actua Soccer too. Amatai, meanwhile, perhaps a more up-to-date reference um, for some of our younger <laughs> listeners. Last weekend, uh, West Ham versus Spurs at the London Stadium gave a pretty perfect example of where a chatty co-commentator really comes into his own. This was a one of those situations that we all know know well, which is a footballer getting the ball in the balls. And this is Fornells to Cresswell. That's a good block, but it was at a little bit of personal cost to uh, Jaffet Tanganga. This is how you stop across. Oh dear. I'm not sure I would recommend it. Doesn't need to be a cold day to make your eyes water, that one. Um, Amitai, that's a situation that has to be dealt with quite sensitively, doesn't it? There's, there's something I absolutely...
absolutely adore about those moments in mm. commentary terms, which is they just skirt around the subject in like a really Huge. weird way. It's it's bizarre. Like I, we've lived in a world where I think it's about twenty five years since the Simpsons did football in the groin, and that was a thing, and that is a that is a you know that that has existed for the better part of three decades basically, <laughs> and still we have commentators going on, and they just don't mention what's happened. Um, and also there's also the the knowing element of it. If you're Alan Smith, it's like oh yeah, I have had a I've had a ball to the balls mm. a number of times. As a, a yeah, former professional, grown. yeah, there's a lot of authority in that. Little, <laughs> yeah. it's, the, it, it's the it's the sympathy of it's happened yeah. to me. I know how this feels, and you know what? I'm going to be really sort of calm and relaxed when I speak about it because I I know the pain he's going through right now as a former professional. Just the 19 and a half minutes it, it took Vermintide to drop the Simpsons <laughs> to. Uh, episode of Football Clichés. The most unwelcome, but still. Um, Charlie, uh, Amitai was right there, though. It, I love the way it's almost become this kind of unwritten art that they have to skirt around the fact that someone has taken one in the groin. Mm-hmm. You, you can't talk about it in direct terms, can you? It almost qualifies as one of those, just referring back mm. to to last yes. week. It's like, what, you know, ah, that's going uh, to be painful, isn't it? Well, it's, yeah, it's one of those. Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, one of those strange uh, unwritten rules. I mean, I guess a little bit slightly different, but like with the swearing and how that will, you know, audible swearing will prompt the kind of instinctive uh, apologies if you if you heard anything. So it's kind of like that. There are these rules that you sort of have to abide by, and uh, yeah, <laughs> l- lovely stuff from you, Hawthorne. You definitely can't leave. You definitely can't leave it without comment. Um, no, exactly. So you, you had this kind of strange halfway house, which I just really enjoyed because you know it's coming. You know it's coming, and you know they're going to dance around it. So it is a little bit like the swearing apology. You know they're going to have to think of summon some sort of airy fairy words to kind of <laughs> just uh, address the issue without just saying yes, he got struck in the balls with the ball. Um, but Amitai, um chatty co-commentary. The danger with chatty co-commentary is that it can slip into kind of performative indifference. Uh, and I, I guess the candidate there would be Loro. Uh, who kind of made a name for himself with that kind of pantomime level of don't careness. Um, but in certain situations, maybe that kind of inability to summon opinion about something really does uh, have quite an emotive effect. This is uh, Lawrenson and Motson when England were desperately trying to claw back the game against Croatia at Wembley in 2007 before their Euro 2008 hopes were dashed. Chorluka into Petric. Say something, Mark. Say something. Come on. England just got to plough forward and hope, just hope that something comes off here. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard any anything more desperate from two co-commentators in in a, in a textbook football situation than that. Say something, Mark. I can't. <laughs> I, th- I think the the value of it there is yeah it does seem like it's natural it seems yeah. like you're watching it on the couch with him it's like oh come on like what are you thinking and it's like uh, I don't know I'm scared I'm scared we're not going to the Euros what's what's going to happen <laughs> um, but but I think there's the other side of it which is something that's come up before like Mark Lawrenson on a 2am Japan against Nigeria World Cup game fantastic because you don't care either and you're only mm-hmm. watching it because uh, out of some sort of weird obligation or because maybe you're working or something along those lines but Mark Lawrenson on England against Germany in a World Cup knockout game and you're saying so what do you think of uh, Rooney's performance so far oh, I'm not bothered then then it really really grates actually yeah. no I, I, I get that so there, there is a time and place for simply not caring or or 
or more to the point, just simply not having anything to say. Okay, Charlie, so this kind of leads us to the other end of the co-commentary spectrum. The kind of co-commentators that I would classify as kind of overimposing heart-on-sleeve characters who kind of blend, who kind of blur the lines between mm. their turn and the commentator's turn, which is a, a lot of purists would, would regard as kind of a new style way of doing it, when a lot of you know traditional commentators would really turn their nose up at it. Candidates here, fairly obvious, you're Steve McManamans, you're Robbie Savages, who kind of take it upon themselves to really kind of launch themselves into proceedings. First question here, a very serious point is, are co-commentators talking too much now? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess someone like Savage is the kind of Marmite character. And I guess for, for broadcasters, I mean, to what Amatai was saying before that, you know, often we do just want people who are going to talk quite passionately and, you know, go on rants maybe that can be clipped up and, you know, um, put on social media. I'm thinking someone like Roy Keane. So I guess that, you know, that there is a value to to having someone like that who is that, who has that more passion um speaks a bit more but i think probably for the purists that those lines have been blurred a bit but then sometimes you know we even have games where there are sort of two co-commentators or one and then one who they're sort of bringing in quite a lot and i think that can work quite well where it is a bit more fluid and it sounds a little bit more like a conversation like i think neville does that well and carragher like it feels that they you know they're very much there and present with you the whole time without being too overbearing yeah you definitely have to get that kind of blend right i mean emma time maybe we are being a bit too traditionalist to kind of assume that it has to be kind of turn-based and then you have a few seconds and the little pause and the co-commentator kind of drifts in maybe a kind of conversational kind of impulsive way of doing it is is a bit more natural and again more authentic yeah i mean there's an argument to be made for that i do have to say when it comes to mcmahon and Savage, I have this weird quirk where I can never tell which of them is commentating, despite the fact they <laughs> both have like completely different accents, completely different voices. And I think this is why it, it it works very well as a category. This, yeah, I think I think we don't need you know you don't need Drury every time going. So what do you think about that, Robbie? Like sometimes him interjecting is is good because it shows that he's mm. passionate about the game, right? Yeah. That's the yeah. It, it means he's involved. He's involved in what is actually a conversation. M- maybe it's the it's the podcast version of a. <laughs> commentary <laughs> no that's a very good point I, I i would accept that and and you know if you've, if you've got something to say or if it's or if it's just a reaction that you need to get out then i kind of excuse a, a co-commentator for doing it because as you say it shows that they're invested and we've already established that we don't want our co-commentators to be indifferent and not care so we can't have it both ways and, and with that that is the, one of the key things is that they feel natural and that it's not affected. I think with, with Loro, sometimes it felt like that world weariness was a bit wearing because it it felt slightly affected. Whereas someone like Mick McCarthy, his world weariness, I think, which seemed just so natural, we could really get so on board in his with. DNA. Yeah, he was exactly. born world weary. He was born world weary. Yeah. Um, and so again, maybe you know you have more sympathy for someone who's talking perhaps a bit more than ideally you would want because at least they they care and someone like Ali McCoist is is so great because it does feel really natural and um his enthusiasm is is kind of infectious and that can happen sometimes even with with the more kind of busy overimposing ones I, I worry about McCoist though I worry about the shark jump moment for McCoist because I feel like we're rapidly approaching it clearly an immensely brilliant human being and I really enjoy his co-commentary as as an alternative to what we're normally offered. I don't think I'd want it with every single game, but and, and that's that's pretty much the only objection I have. There, well, I had no objections. Um, so Ali's fine with me, but I, I just I worry that there's a, a clock ticking there. But 
Amitai, on the subject of, of co-commentators talking so much, they've talked so much over the years that there, there are certain things that I feel like they're almost obliged to say, that you can't go through a 90 minutes of any game without hearing some certain things. So we asked our listeners to come up with some examples of this. Jonathan Fernley, I really, really like this one. The, the phrasing of it has to be absolutely right. He says, um, usually by the third or fourth replay of a goal that was scored quite emphatically, the co-commentators run out of things to stay, say, but they required to keep talking. So they simply say, keeper, no chance, <laughs> which grammatically doesn't work. And um, uh, But but it, now I think about it, that's exactly what they do say. They just say, keeper, no chance. Uh, something else that I was thinking about when you were saying that was that um, in the world of VAR, there's a new one of those, which is uh, on the second or third replay when they go, ooh, maybe or oh wait a minute and they actually consider whether or not this decision should be overturned it seems to become a new cliche maybe we're actually getting into the realms of the var cliche well that's probably quite a good development isn't it charlie because uh, one of the one of the kind of universal bugbears about co-commentators is they refuse to back down mm. despite being faced with various <laughs> camera angles um, maybe var has kind of pushed them over the edge and in, in that they have nowhere to go now they kind of have to acquiesce once they've finally seen the truth in front of their eyes yeah and that thing of um there's that get out as well now because you can say something like that's never a penalty and then it's like well in the current climate can you know can you ever really say that you know <laughs> who knows and that kind of allows them to then be like oh well maybe i guess in the current ludicrous climate it could be a penalty it's fine to change your mind yeah with I, more I evidence to believe that it's in yeah it's, it's absolutely fine if anything it's it should be kind of cathartic to reveal that the evidence has made you completely do a U-turn on your first initial impulsive call. I don't see what the mm. hang-up about. No, is. I know. It's, um, yeah. Um, another niche one here from Sam Charlie. Uh, he says, early in the second half, the co-commentator will reference the halftime punditry by saying, the boys in the studio. It is against broadcasting laws to refer to the boys in the studio by name or as anything else. <laughs> I never thought about that. And it, he is absolutely right. Boys, yeah. I feel like they, um, at the same time, they're, they're pointing behind their shoulder with their thumb <laughs> um, to sort of a nondescript location. Yeah, I didn't really have anything to add there. It's just, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's one of those. <laughs> it is one, one of those. those. Yes. Just just acknowledge that it yeah. happens and I think we can move on. But yes, thank you, Sam. You're absolutely right. Um, on to the kind of um, really substantial strata of co-commentary now, Amitai. I'm talking about the earnest students of the game. Andy Townsend, Andy Hinchcliffe, Effa Nakoku, Don Goodman. And um, Hinchcliffe, I think of those... He comes across as one of the most demanding co-commentators I've ever heard. His standards are so high. Yeah. I, I, I feel a bit bad for Andy Hinchcliffe because when he was commentating Leeds against Southampton last night, I saw quite a few tweets about how Leeds had escaped the championship to get away from him, which I felt a bit bad about. <laughs> oh. um, but um, yeah, I, another name that I think of with this is actually um, Danny Higginbottom, who... I think I've spoken to a couple of reporters about this and he used to call the club reporter for 45 minutes before every game just so he was up to date with everything which is in contrast to a lot of other co-commentators in terms of um, studying. I think I think it's quite interesting because Don Goodman gets a bit of a bad rep sometimes I feel because he's such an earnest student of the game. He is so keen to appear impartial so keen to be oh this team has had more shots so they deserve to win this this team's had more possessions that you start saying things like isn't life unfair when a team gets an undeserved <laughs> winner 
is, is it as well? Is it a curse of the earnest, earnest student of the game subtract that they're all reasonably interchangeable? Like I feel like more so. I know Amatai said he has this weird blind spot with with Savage and uh, McManaman, but I feel with with sort of Hinchcliffe, Goodman, and various others, you're maybe because they are sort of stridently non-controversial. It's often quite hard to tell which one's which. Stridently non-controversial is a really nice way of putting. It. I think I I am latterly emerging from my Hinchcliffe Goodman dilemma. Right. I can now work out which one it is. And as Amatai uh, pointed out with um, commentators before, it isn't an accent thing. They haven't got the same accent. It's just the same delivery, the same same kind of sort of very purposeful, just about urgent enough delivery of their opinion, which which kind of makes them sound quite similar. So for the first five minutes, you're really quite unsure. But Hinchcliffe is starting to emerge. Amatai is talking about how Hinchcliffe is kind of deemed to um, have followed leads up from the championship. I feel like he's made the step up, Charlie, quite well. <laughs> yeah, I, I did think that before when you said about the high standards, I noticed that a game last season. I remember, you know, when the kind of they could have had three or four here is, is really mm. uh, overused. And I think a bit um, <laughs> maybe inaccurate just because, you know, the, the same chances wouldn't have happened in the same way, whatever. But like some of the chances that we're saying, like, you've just got to score that were kind of snapshots from the edge of the box that I'm kind of impressed they got a shot off maybe that's part of under the umbrella term of insight maybe that kind of set of high standards comes with it um, Amatai that reminds me of um, in those situations where a co-commentator will speculatively suggest that the score could be something else they always offer you a range of options I was like this could have been six, seven, eight. <laughs> they never pinpoint it I, I swear that's in the guidebook somewhere I don't know if you've also noticed, and just on Charlie's point, but they never say. I feel like they move, move, have moved on from. He's got to score there, and it's now he's got to do better there, or he's got um, to work the keeper. He's got to work the keeper. It's never. I feel like this is a sort of expected goals thing. It's now they know that actually no one has to score from any particular <laughs> shot, but oh, they've got yes, to at least do better. Right. Yeah, so well, they've sort of softened it slightly, just to yeah, in line with um, analytics. Maybe very niche one. This Charlie from a while ago, um, Daniel. Maya alerted me to the almost universal noise of, well, I'm going to spell it out for you, E-E-A-A-H-H-H, um, which is an absolute staple of co-commentary. Uh, he says, I swear the PFA run a course on it for recently retired players, most commonly heard in the 44th minute when they're asked which manager will be the happier at half time. So I guess it's, um, it's the, the noise, which I can kind of attempt to approximate, which is kind of, yeah, which is a kind of halfway between yeah and... Um, um, I suppose. <laughs> There's also the kind of cousin of this. After about 20, 25 minutes, and it's still, you know, you've gone into the game and one team has been, you know, has had a bit of a hard time, and it's something like, uh, I'll be pretty happy with this so far, won't he, Jim? I think he'll be delighted. <laughs> I think he'll be absolutely delighted. You know, yeah. they they haven't given anything away, and it's like, uh, you, and there's this moment where you, you just sign it. There's a kind of calming where it feels like, wait a minute, they're not really getting battered and uh, again it's a speculation on the kind of pleasure and they'll cut to the manager looking sort of determinedly uh, pensive and serious but you can tell he is inside he's he's delighted his team is still in this game the more i think about it amatai the the ostensibly superficial question of which manager will be happier at halftime i feel like does actually serve a quite a kind of subtle function whether you're 
whether you're supporting one of the teams who are playing or as a neutral, I feel like it does. There's a bit of confirmation in your brain about how that first half may have gone when a co-commentator answers that quite leading question with, "Yeah, yeah, he will be quite happy with that." And you think in your brain, you go, "Yeah, I agree," because you very rarely disagree with that. It's one of those observations that you'll never disagree with. You'll never go, "No, he'll be, be really feeling. annoyed with that." Actually, it's, yeah. it's, it's one of those. It's one of those where the narrative comes into it. Like they always. I, 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 I'm sure Charlie's the same, but when they used to sort of teach you at like journalism school, which we've all been to, obviously, mm. um, but <laughs> when they when they sort of talk to you about how to do a match report, they say watch it without the commentary because I I think the number of times that I've watched a game with the commentary on and thought, oh yeah, they're right with the man of the match. The man of the match <laughs> is correct, and like up until that point, I've not noticed Michael Keane make 16 headers <laughs> uh, to get Everton a one 0 win with uh, Dominic Calvert Lewin scoring. But at that point, when they go, Michael Keane has been brilliant. I go, he has been brilliant. So it's another little subtle um, sort of nod in the right direction from the co-commentator. We should, Charlie. We should definitely talk about the logic of choosing man of the match. Now there is this kind of ongoing conspiracy theory that they just choose whoever wants to be interviewed after the game. I'm not interested in that. I'm, I want to take it at face value. And I feel like there's always a slight hint of contrarianism about, about it. That There will always be a player who probably should win it, but then there's someone else who's done something a little bit more kind of earthy and heroic. And therefore, yeah, it's going to have to go to, you know, yeah. James Ward-Prowse. Yeah, I, you know, I think the obvious shout is uh, who scored a hat trick. But for me, there's also it's also um, good scope for you know Gary Neville picking a right back, Carragher picking a centre back. Nice scope for the kind of well, yeah, right backs union, Gary, um, and that and that sort of thing. I also I'm always surprised by how rarely you know they'll pick him out they'll pick him out of the match sometimes quite early in a game and you'll think but there's so much scope for it to change but it never really seems to it's like that how early how early have you ever seen it gone I'm I'm thinking no earlier than 89 yeah but sometimes I've seen, there'll be sort of seven or eight minutes of stoppage time and you think oh okay you know, this the and the the and it's a choice that's so contingent on the result it's basically like if they if they haven't won the game you can't possibly give it to this player. Um, but they yeah. seem to always get away with it. Yeah, it's a good point. They're not factoring in injury time when you know we are given the indication of how much time they left. Maybe they should be delaying these decisions. Amitai, we, we we talk about how supposedly important it is for co-commentators to do their homework, as these earnest students of the game have done. Uh, our secret commentator Bob says, once when doing a Copa Libertadores match off tube with a 1am start, the co-commentator arrived at 12.15 and said, all right, what game are we doing tonight? Staggered doesn't begin to describe my reaction. He'd done bugger all to prepare. It was the big number nine, the fullback. I don't know too much about this team, etc., etc. And then they expect you to dig them out by asking you questions like, how old is he? Or where did they sign him from? But these questions are on air during the match. He sounds like a nightmare, whoever he was. I've got an admission here in that I once went to cover a game and only realised who the opposition were when I got the tube and saw fans of the club <laughs> heading in the same direction. Um, which, well, that, that, that is, you know, sometimes you're just not 100% prepared for what's ahead of you. Open-minded, yeah, if anything. No, exa- well, exactly. Maybe there's, maybe there's an element <laughs> You researched to this. every you know, team just on the off chance yeah, it might it, be them. What if, for example, this co-commentator goes along, he looks at the players, it's a blank canvas, he's got no biases ahead of him, and he sees that big number nine and he thinks, you know what, it, that num- big number nine, I'm very impressed with him. And he comes away and he learns something, and so does the listener, because it's a learning experience for you both. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a perfectly good theory. Now, Charlie, I mean, it's hard for us to ever to speculate how much homework a co-commentator has done, but sometimes there are just various combinations of game 
location, time, and co-commentator that makes me wonder how much does this guy really <laughs> know or care? And um, and again, I, I, I can't speculate on how much homework he did, but the perfect example is, is the Copa Libertadores final of a couple of years ago. This is not related to Bob's story, I should, I should add. And um, Kevin Gallagher, the former Blackburn Rovers striker, was doing the co-commentary. It was the Boca Juniors versus River Plate from a couple of years ago. And I just thought, how on earth <laughs> has Kevin Gallagher? I mean, there, there's no reason why he shouldn't have a job, I should add. But it just strikes me as a very unlikely situation for him to find himself in. And what I really like as well is it's not just um, commentators. I mean, but players as well. You'll sometimes hear, we all do it, you know, we've all been in a situation where you get asked a question and you just talk in like such vague terms. But sometimes you'll get caught out because they're not actually accurate. And I remember a couple of years ago, City were playing Fulham. And Fulham at the time were getting like absolutely battered each week. And he was, our, as I think it was Zinchenko was asked like, you know, Fulham next. What, what do you make of that? Clearly I had no idea about it. It was like, yeah, I mean, they're a team that's, you know, tough, uh, well-organised, difficult to beat, all of this. It's like, I mean, they're absolutely not. You, you've, 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 we've all been there. You've just chucked in a few things that are, I mean if he'd said that about any other team he'd probably have been correct and you do sometimes get that impression with Bob's co-commentator I imagine you know well we know there'll be a lot of passion in this South American team we know that about South American teams uh, so there's like some things you could probably get away with but uh, you'll just say the odd thing that slightly jars yeah national stereotypes especially at World Cups are the kind of base mm. level of co-commentary kind of getting away with it. I, 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 in, in the industry's defence, I feel like we we are moving away from, you know, the Dutch, you know, being full of inviting and the Italians being perennial slow starters. starters. And the, yeah, the Spanish aren't perennial underachievers anymore, so it doesn't work. So I guess we just, there, there's nothing that's come along to replace those, those stereotypes. But there was a thing, but, um, wasn't there, Adam, as well, that an evolution whereby, was it Martin O'Neill who was kind of sniggered at for having done his research as if, like, he was a, class SWAT you know, do you remember back in the day there was a little bit of times of change yeah exactly a little bit of a like a was that when he read Robbie Williams discography on Wikipedia <laughs> but it, you know a kind of like oh someone's done their research whereas now we have gone that other yeah. way to Loro being shamed on social media for not knowing about Benjamin Pavard Amitai a couple of other things that relate to the knowledge or lack of when it comes to co-commentators sometimes there, there is a kind of charming aspect to this now I should I should say that I don't I don't really have a particular opinion on whether co-commentators should pronounce players names correctly or not you know you know absolutely correctly I'm saying but uh, Andy Stevenson writes in and says I have a distinct memory of an ITV Champions League match in the late 90s where David Pleat pronounced Ginola with a hard G <laughs> and Gillespie with a soft G for the whole game <laughs> I mean mispronunciation of players names it to me is perfectly um incidental and often quite charming but there has to be a point after which it just gets a bit weird and sounds like it might be quite deliberate and those two examples must be one of those i i think personally i, I just want them to pronounce it however one pronounces it i feel as though like if 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 people call kylin and bap kylin and bap call him that if it's Mbappe I don't actually want to know really I'd rather not I'd rather not have um, a co-commentator telling me I'm wrong for 90 minutes essentially uh, if I'm in conversation with someone and I've been spending an hour mispronouncing a name I don't want a co-commentator to correct me through my television thank you very much there have been a few um, other I remember Jonathan Pierce all of a sudden on match of the day started saying oh, Luis Garcia and this really weird, like, and he'd obviously like heard it and been made aware of it. And then John Champion in an Arsenal game starts saying Thanti Cathorla. And, and honestly, in the second <laughs> half, he, they'd obviously got a lot of messages. And he said, we've been receiving a lot of messages about my pronunciation of Cathorla. 
And the reason <laughs> I asked him and he told me that's how it's pronounced. It was like really pointed. Yeah, that's always that. It's always and, that, which is, again, perfectly yeah, good exactly. journalism, and, surely. And the other day in yeah. the uh, Southampton Arsenal, I think it was the FA Cup one, uh, and Martin Keown was really sweet because he'd obviously spoken to Hassan Hurtel quite recently and who was really impressed by him because he kept talking throughout the game about how amazing it was. But also he was doing that thing of like Hassan Hurtel, like really trying to get the pronunciation mm. right. Oh, that's so yeah, Keown. It was, we, actually, this is the first time we've mentioned yeah, Keown. Exactly. He fits smack bang in the middle of this subgenre. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, extremely earnest. But yeah, he'd obviously... Um, He'd obviously done his research and, and, you know, fair enough. If you know it, I guess you, you want to go with it. Um, actually, quite important that we've got a Leeds fan on for this. Um, it's just reminded me that um, one of the most curious temporary pronunciations of a footballer's name, uh, Amitai, was what, for what felt like about three seconds in the late 90s. Lee Bowyer was pronounced Lee Boyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is that Leeds fans still, I think, call him Boyer. Which is really weird. I've never <laughs> really figured out the pronunciation because I was always Bowyer as a kid. Yeah, um, I mean another another one like that is almost as if he underwent a rebrand when he left Leeds. Which is um, <laughs> watching back on it, uh, Eric Cantona was Contona until yes. he went to Man U. Yes, um, which well, I always well, find a bit weird. And there's the the, the modern example of that is uh, Angolo Kante is yeah. Conte when it comes to Martin Tyler. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I've never understood where the, when the shift happens, who has the conversation. Uh, is it Martin Tyler ringing them up in the summer and going, by the way, have I just been mispronouncing your name for no, the last year? It does sound year? like it. That's, that is the process. I mean, they, they, they have reasonably decent access with the players. And, and I guess co-commentators are probably the least threatening people that, that can ever approach them. But um, I remember Cantona because um, really, really early on in, in the Sky era, he, it was, wasn't just Cantona, it was Cantona with the emphasis completely changed. And that's just like, who is this guy? Um, it is, it's really nice thing that those players in that innocent phase where no one really knows who they are. But with, with strident opinions and good preparation, Charlie, and as we've mentioned, high standards, comes a set of things that co-commentators just cannot abide seeing. There are strict things that only they will spot and express their disapproval of. I'll kick you off with referees not playing advantages. And I was, yeah, referees not playing an advantage when they really should have done. I, that is genuinely inexcusable, but they really hate it, don't they? Yeah, and also, uh, as I mentioned before about VAR creating a whole new subgenre, a good one of that is the um, the linesmen's not raising their flag because they've been told, oh, yes. which has also then Great created flag. another, like a uh, someone's been hitting the balls or apologies for the swearing. The main commentator say. Well, of course, the the linesmen are instructed <laughs> not to raise yeah, their flags. Yeah, thing, yeah, isn't it? yeah. I, I so, that, so there's this little dance that has to happen. The complaint, the kind of uh, <laughs> someone's going to get hurt eventually, and then the yeah. but it's not one of these one days. Is, but it's not their fault. Those are the new instructions, mm. and it's these little steps that kind of have to happen um, with any sort of vague offside. Um, Amitai, why do co-commentators hate strikers not looking across the line when they're caught offside so much? What is it about that? Who hurt them? It's, it's because they can see the replay and they can go, well, why can't <laughs> yeah, he no. see this? Uh, another, another thing that co-commentators absolutely despise is uh, a corner taker not beating the first man from a corner. And, and it's not just that they dislike it, but it's actually criminal. They should be locked up for it. It's never, it's never bad. It's criminal. That's, what, that's how bad it is. Similar to that is the going near post. You have to go across the keeper. Then any, you know, any bits that come out, someone, someone can follow up. That, that goes down extremely badly. Yeah, co-commentators are just generally um, very suspicious of near posts. 
goalkeepers yeah, should be beaten better. At the near post, Strikers yeah. simply shouldn't shoot there. <laughs> um, <laughs> just stay clear of the near post. Yeah, I guess there's something inherently unromantic about the near post. Uh, the far post is where dramatic, exciting things happen. So I guess that's just stuck in their brain. Um, but speaking of exciting and dramatic things happening, this takes us on to um, perhaps the, the, the golden era of co-commentary. And uh, something I want to talk to you both about, which I have described as the Lulu effect. Um, now, the Lulu effect was first identified by co-commentary researchers as long ago as Monday evening, uh, when I actually invented it. it. It It's a phenomenon demonstrated by the likes of Andy Gray on Sky Sports. Now, um, before, we, before we get stuck into this, uh, let's play just a nice classic slice of Gray to ease us in. And Robert Perez has got the better of it, and he looks to get the better of Schmeichel, and he's done it impeccably. Oh, sorry, I'm applauding. That's genius. That is genius. You don't buy them. They don't come in packets. Oh. A golden goal from a player in a golden shirt. A golden time for Arsenal. His teammates are back in the halfway line, Mark. They turn man, they're just standing applauding there. I mean, to get round Boateng was impressive enough. But to have the, the cheek, the audacity, and the ability to finish it off like this, I'll take a bounce on. That's brilliant. Charlie, we spent a good portion of this episode talking about homework and, uh, and knowledge and insight. But as I said at the very top of this episode, sometimes I just want my co-commentator to sound good. To have a great voice, and it, they, the voices never came greater than this. Great voice and also great passion. He did. Uh, he really cared, and he made you. Um, he he captured some of the excitement. I think that viewers felt. He yeah. He was. I mean, I yeah. I, I always. <laughs> I always seem. To... You don't have to caveat it. You don't. No have no to no. Say exactly. I, I I always bring up Andy Gray as. Um, I, th- I think because when I was. Sort of got into football. He he was absolutely the voice of football for me. You know he and he he had such authority. But yeah, you you listen to that and it, and it is it's great. You know and he's. I mean I just think how much how loudly he must have been clapping into his microphone so it could pick him up and then explaining I'm clapping I'm clapping. Amatai, as a slightly younger person, um, when when people of our vintage present to you that Andy Gray was the greatest co-commentator of all all things considered, how do you feel? Um, it's quite interesting because, like, I, I think, I think, yeah, the the Andy Gray thing is a bit tainted. But then there's the other side of it, which is B. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but B- BT Sport brought him back mm. for an FA Cup game yes. at one point, and and you you tuned in almost as a novelty. And it was I can't remember what game it was, but it wasn't great. It was I think it was, it was Arsenal v by... Liverpool in the FA Cup fifth round of 2014. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was it made it a much better game. The 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 thing that that clip doesn't demonstrate of Andy Gray, which I've only really realised in retrospect that he used to do, which I now think is brilliant, is the um, made up conversation between the yes. person who provides the assist and the goal scorer. The you know, and he says thank you to him side of things from Andy Gray, which I I just think is absolutely brilliant. He's just he's just making it up, and it's uh, I don't know, it's pure entertainment. Yeah, I think I think. Without the without the what happened, which the Athletic did a great long read on, if anyone wants to read it, um, the the uh, I'd have Andy Gray doing every game these days. But yeah, it's um, it's not not really possible. Charlie, just to, just to really emphasise how, in in terms of Andy Gray's commentary, how the sound of his voice pretty much took precedence over pretty much anything else, whether the content or the words or anything. Um, it's perhaps this clip which. Um, 
it's, it's hard to make head nor tail of, but it, yet it's still perfectly Andy Gray. Well, he didn't score, but what a party played. And the man I'm talking about is the name of the man. He's wearing everyone's lips. That's him. Creates it. He does it time and time and time again. Yes, of course, you may know that clip from the uh, intro to Football Clichés, but um, it's, 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 the, it's the tone of the voice. The, the slight rasp, but but the, the kind of lower levels that no other voice can hit really is tremendous. Yeah, he. it's the... You know how I would often say things like, I'm sorry. And and that does sort of express it. It's like, I'm you know, <laughs> I'm just... Yeah, I'm sorry, but I am so overwhelmed with the strength of feeling yeah. here. And my and I feel so strongly about those out-to-win runs that Freddie Jungberg makes. I'm, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I just can't control my enthusiasm and I realised before knowing that game he commentated on Amitai makes me sound like a proper Andy Granarak it is just kind of a weird coincidence that I know that I haven't I don't like uh, have a record of all the games he's done in my head although actually I probably do but yes I mean I I wonder with Andy Gray whether at what point he realised like you know it always seemed to me a bit random that he because on BBC you had people like Gary Lineker and obviously Gary Lineker was England captain and England legend and all of this sort of stuff whereas you know, Andy Gray felt in some ways like a slightly odd person to be so prominent. Um, and I wonder if, it, if at what point he did realise he had this amazing voice for broadcasting and this kind of infectious enthusiasm for it. So, Amitai, we're talking about a kind of tone of voice here, but we're, 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 we really ought to mention the fact that this is a fundamental component of this is having a Scottish accent, which is a huge professional advantage to be a co-commentator, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I, I was just thinking then about how um, the for about 10 years, Leeds, their radio station had Eddie Gray co-commentating, almost as if it was an obligation <laughs> to have a Scotsman <laughs> called Gray as a co-commentator. Um, yeah, no, a, a 100%. I think there's something about being from Scotland that just qualifies you to talk about football. Maybe it's because they, they almost play like a pure version of the game up there. You know, yeah. you've got Queen's Park. It's mm. all... it's it, They played the passing game first. They, they, it feels as though they've always... Um, they didn't invent football, but they almost provide like a mythical element to it. Maybe it goes back to the fact that in the 60s, they were the only non-English players apart from Irish players in the league. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's where it comes from. Yeah, it, it's. I, I hesitate to call it kind of an authority in their voice. It's just, it's just their voice lends itself to exactly the type of excitement that's going on. And while we talk about Andy Gray, um, there is a kind of, there was a kind of brief rival for his throne, even though he was commentating in the second tier and that's Alan Brazil Charlie who whose co-commentary really needs to be revisited I Dead. Unbelievable! And Paul Dickoff! Wow! 
going to labour the point even more here, Charlie. There is something about the Scottish accent, <laughs> the way that the vowels and the consonants are delivered, which makes it better for commentating on moments like that than any other accent. Fact. There's a gravitas to it as well, isn't there? It's sort of it, you. There really is. You, you just yeah, and a purity. Yeah, it, it does. I mean that that is that's great. I'd kind of forgotten that Alan Brazil used to do that. But yeah, I mean he. He absolutely captures it there. Scottish men aside, um, the thing about Andy Gray's co-commentary was because he had such an established partnership amateur with Martin Tyler. And a lot of his kind of iconic commentaries come down to timing. Martin Tyler, I mean, this is all fairly textbook. Martin Tyler has called the goal. There'll be a kind of brief moment for us all to savour the moment. And then Andy Gray will launch into his version of events. Now, it got me thinking... That dynamic, you know, showcased most effectively by Andy Gray, was incredibly similar to how a secondary artist in a song will suddenly join in for the bridge, out of almost seemingly nowhere to devastating effect. A little bit like Lulu in Relight My Fire by Take That. same thing it's the same phenomenon well he didn't score but what a party played and the man i'm talking about is the name of the man is wearing everyone's lips that's him he does it time and time and time again Charlie, I'm onto something. The Lulu effect is is a thing, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's that that chemistry. It's the timing. Like like that's what I was talking about before. You know, with the goals, it's the it's the not having to necessarily say like Andy Gray. You know, what did you think of that? It's the it happens, and then the other just kind of slides in without you noticing. Perfectly, yeah, it's my turn. Yeah, it's, it's seamless. my time. Yeah, yeah. Just something really wonderful about it, and I'm I'm convinced that. You know, for certain fans over a certain period of time, you would remember goal clips like that like you would a song. It kind of has the same kind of evocative effect on you years down the line, surely. And so Andy Gray coming in to call a Robert Pires goal must have the same impact on an Arsenal fan as a uh, as a um, devoted Take That follower for Relight My Fire. We haven't, of course, Charlie mentioned your Carragher's and your Neville's, who feels almost a cliche to say this now, but they've taken it to a new level. And I mean on a technical level. They are they have become less of bystanders, more of a kind of taking an active role on, in commentary. So where does co-commentary go from here? Mm. Yeah, and, and it's, um, you sometimes have the third man as well, like I was saying, where you've got the two main ones and then a third who will kind of it works, dip in and out. It? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that... Um, it would be strange if you had a Neville or a Carragher who is so insightful and so opinionated if they weren't of a more, you know, uh, kind of a more, I was going to say visible, but more audible presence throughout. You know, you want them to be there, that it's, you know, it is more of a sort of joint operation rather than just the, the more classic delineation of your main commentator and then your co-com who comes in only at the key moments. Amitai, the problem that we might have with these kind of duos in the co-commentary gantry is that when they're so obviously pinned to one club, we, we open this inevitable can of worms of bias, which 
should or shouldn't um, annoy people, uh, it's, it's entirely up for debate. But given that so many co-commentators are so anxious to appear impartial and straight down the line, um, where do you stand on this? I mean, it's it's fine to be biased, isn't it? Surely. I mean, why should people care? It doesn't affect anything. It's not going to affect the game. No, it's, it's just it's just fun, isn't it? It's, it's the equivalent of... Um, do you remember Sky Sports Fan Zone? Uh, it's the equivalent of having sort of the screaming people from that, but actually a bit a bit more knowledgeable and a bit more... And the, the other side of it is if you're the fan of a rival club watching, and and I, I always think this, the reason I enjoy Gary Neville's It's Manchester United Football Club rants is because it means, and I'm showing my biases here, it means that Manchester United are losing <laughs> and I'm I'm quite enjoying it. Yeah, and, there is, and, there is mm. a payoff, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's so, where so the bias see, actually comes in quite handy. Yeah. Yeah. So you you enjoy the fact that actually sometimes Gary Neville goes a bit OTT when Man U sneak a win against someone because you know that actually six months down the line, Solskjaer's going to be stood on the touchline, rain pouring, looking a bit miserable, and Gary Neville's going to be having a go at Ed Woodward because he's not signing enough <laughs> players. You know, and, and, and this is again the sort of like the trade, it's the trade-off. It's the trade-off for a bit of bias. It, it's the, sometimes they get their comeuppance, which is what you see with Carragher right now with Liverpool. It's the, it's the fun of it, basically. He's paying for Mo Sally, a little dancer when uh, he scored that last minute winner against Spurs which I think was, a, was for some people was a little bit of a tipping point um, maybe there is still a line I think there might still I think be a that line was one, that needs to be drawn I do remember hearing that and being like that's maybe a little too far because yeah. that was becoming yeah. a bit too fan zone but um, I, th- I think that's right about the, um, the you then get the the payback because there is if, if you are enjoying <laughs> if, if you're experiencing schadenfreude then it doesn't get much better than hearing someone really pained talking about their beloved Liverpool or United well, it, it just it just strikes me that we've we've come so far down the line from Trevor Brooking just chatting his way amiably for a football game. It's, you, we're just never, ever going to have that type of co-commentary mm. again. I mean, Ali McCoist is kind of like, almost a sort of an extended, enhanced version of that, but it's still, it's not quite the same. It isn't that kind of um, gentle heartbeat going on in the background. We're not going to get that with, with Carragher and Neville for better or worse. But also with McCoist, I think to, to Amatai's point about an appropriateness in the same way you wouldn't want a kind of chilled out Loro when you're desperately chasing a goal in a, for England in a World Cup game. McCoyst works so well, I think, in a game you're not that invested in because it is that gentle meandering Absolutely thing. Right. I think for a lot of fans, they'd be like, he's not taking it seriously enough, you know. That so it's it, it, there is that kind of and whereas Neville and Carragher are the right level of gravitas and seriousness. So it is about matching up uh, the commentator of the occasion, maybe. Absolutely right. I mean, Amitai, perhaps you you wouldn't want Ali McCoyst on the mic when your team is having their Aguero moment, perhaps. <laughs> No, not at all. But then when you've you've got him sat there in some outpost in Russia and he's done a tour of the town in the day and like you're, mm. you are watching the Czech Republic against, um, <laughs> you know, a, another random side from Group B and you've got it on because it's lunch and you, you're not really doing anything. And, and Alec McCoy is sat there saying, oh, I went on a great tour of the... Uh, the historic farming village on the <laughs> outskirts of this city uh, and I ate a great lunch and blah, and I've had a lovely morning I went for a stroll by the canals and you go hang on a minute this is a bit like watching a sort of a travel show as mm. well as watching football it's it's you let it wash over you and you kind of like it's like it's almost like a, a it's sort of like a yoga session it's a bit of meditation almost it's uh, it's just calming we've managed to pin this all of this concept to the cornerstones of culture which is the simpsons wrestling Take that and Actua Soccer too. So thank you both for guiding me through that. I think I think we've I think we've finally covered what it means to be a co-commentator, even if we are no closer to deciding what makes a good one. Hmm. And perhaps it just doesn't matter. 
Um, thanks, Charlie. Thank you. And thank you, Emma Tai. What a, what a cool, calm, almost Brooking-esque <laughs> debut from you. Thanks very much. Cheers, everyone. We'll see you next week. It's not over till the final whistle and City here looking for an opening. It's Dick off again! Oh, Dick, a bow shot. That's brilliant. The Athletic.